Days 1 and 2 of our US West Coast road trip. Day one. Our big American adventure started today at 5.30 in the morning, half an hour before the alarm was due to waken us. As always, we were wide awake well before the accursed beep-beep and enthusiastically launched ourselves into our big travel day. Young George picked us up at 7.45, dropped us at Dundee Station, and we took the train to Edinburgh Haymarket, then caught the tram to the airport. Despite quite a large queue at check-in, we were soon short of the big suitcase and one little one, leaving us with only backpacks and handbags to look after. And as always, that is a great relief when you get rid of the big suitcase. Our British Airways flight to Heathrow was smooth as silk, but we had to hurry all the same when we landed, as there was only an hour between our flights, and our gate was a long walk and a short monorail trip away. For not the first time, I have to say, we ended up panicking slightly and rushed the last bit down to the gate, only to find a huge crowd of passengers still waiting to board. When we saw the plane waiting for us outside on the tarmac, our jaws dropped. It was enormous. Inside, we found 40 rows of three seats by four seats by three seats. And that was only the main deck as there was a second level above our heads. I tried to get up the stairs somewhere over Greenland after using the facilities at the rear, but there was a barrier stopping me and all the other plebs from having a look. Altogether, the flight to San Francisco took ten and a half hours, which is the longest we've ever been on a plane. British Airways served up loads of snacks and drinks, as well as two very reasonable hot meals, so there was no complaints from us as regards the service on board. While Lady Burton took in a movie, I, like a complete nerd, followed the flight path throughout on the screen on the back of the seat in front. I noticed that after we left Heathrow, we flew back up again over Scotland. I knew that because I could clearly make out the three bridges over the fourth, even from 40,000 feet and the entire shape of Fife. I dare say, had I peered really hard, I would have been able to make out our hometown of Dundee sitting at the mouth of the River Tay. From Scotland, we headed northwest out to Iceland, on to Greenland, back overland to Hudson Bay, then more or less a straight line across Canada and the States to the Pacific, and our destination San Francisco. We were still quite wired when we arrived, having both managed only a short kip during the flight, so we were able to cope not too badly with the formalities of the entry into the US carry-on. Did that guy really ask me if I had any explosives on my person? 
Lady Burton, of course, kept me on a short leash there and dared me to crack a joke with the officials the way I'd done on the Rainbow Bridge at Niagara Falls. On that occasion, a couple of years ago, two repetitions of get out of the vehicle, please, sir, had been enough to shut me up. No more jokes then. Once through all the checks, off we strolled to the carousel to collect our luggage. Unfortunately, only one of our two suitcases appeared to have made the journey. The other, according to a text I received, having failed to make the big flight for some reason or other. But we were told there was no panic, as they promised to send it over the next day and transport it directly to our hotel. Next was a question of getting to downtown San Francisco and our hotel on Mason Street. Well, I'd worked it all out on the internet before we left, so we knew to buy tickets for the BART, that's the Bay Area Rapid Transit, a train which took us to Powell Street, just five minutes from the hotel. That bit worked out fine too, and I was soon sitting on the bed writing up my blog of the journey. We went out for something to eat about an hour later, but we couldn't really see anything that took our fancy, and we ended up in a subway getting sandwiches to take back to the hotel. But the exciting bit was the street outside, which was filled with a selection of strange, disabled misfits playing loud rapper music from their mobility scooters, of all things. Everyone appeared to be out of their skulls on the drink or high on something. We thought it was very like what we see on TV, but we didn't find it particularly threatening, to be fair. Back in the hotel room, it goes without saying that we barely touched our sandwiches. We managed a quick call home to say we'd arrived safely, lay down on the bed still fully clothed, and fell fast asleep. Well... We'd been awake for 26 hours after all. Well, that's us here. Let the adventure begin. Day two. Believe it or not, but you know that wee bit of a pun about leaving your hat as opposed to your heart in San Francisco? Well, it actually happened today. You see, checking the weather forecast for the day, we saw it was going to be cloudy all day with a maximum temperature of 14 degrees. Based on this, I decided not to take my hat. And that proved to be a serious mistake. I didn't realise that meteorologists over here deliberately issue false forecasts so they could just sit back and watch people in next to nothing freeze and get soaked. Or maybe it's to study stupid Scotsmen sizzling in soaring temperatures, wearing far too much on their bodies, but crucially, not sporting any headgear. So... By the time I'm on the ferry tour around the bay, 
My pate is already tingling in that disturbing way I know only too well. The cool breeze coming off the Pacific didn't help either, because it managed to persuade me I was quite cold, while the sun was in fact burning a hole in my head. Clouds? We didn't see one all day. The bottom line was I had to buy a new hat as soon as we docked at Pier 39, and then we had to visit the drugstore on the way back to the hotel to buy some aftersun to relieve my aching skull. But here's the story of our first full day in San Francisco. It started with breakfast at the hotel. We decided to give eating in the hotel a try, as we'd no idea where else to go, and we weren't all that sure about going round to the supermarket round the corner where all the zombies were. Don't get the wrong idea that Frisco is populated with extras from the Night of the Living Dead, though. It just so happens that half of those that do live here hang out round the corner from our hotel at the bottom of Mason Street, while the other half frequent the far end of Fisherman's Wharf. But honestly, don't be alarmed, because the rest of the city is just like all the others we've visited in recent years, and the streets seem perfectly safe. So anyway, we took a gamble on breakfast at 12 bucks a head. Unfortunately, we had to give it the thumbs down as the choice was really quite poor and everything was cold anyway. We won't be giving it a second try either, as we intend to buy supplies and have our own leisurely breakfasts in a room, something we regularly do when travelling. Not only does it save you a bob or two, but it's a far better experience for both of us, especially as we don't always jump up and embrace the morning's delights in the way those TV adverts suggest everybody else does. So we hit the streets of San Francisco at about 9.30 and initially made our way across to Union Square, the official city centre. As we arrived, we were assailed by three or four reps trying to sell us bus tour tickets. I'll give you the best price. No, you're cheaper with me. But I chased them all away and we entered the square where we had a surprisingly quiet and undisturbed half an hour seated on a bench in the warm sunshine, admiring all four sides of the central area. The imposing obelisk in the middle didn't, however, commemorate the American Civil War, as we had assumed it would, but instead referred to the capture of Manila in the Philippines in 1898 by US naval forces after war was declared between them and Spain. This really surprised us as we had no idea about this conflict, and Mary, the history expert, reckoned it had something to do with fighting Mexico. But feel free to go and Google it. When we clapped eyes for the very first time on one of those iconic cable cars climbing up Powell Street, we decided just to follow it. And that gave us our first taste of the steep slopes of the city. And steep they surely were. But the intrepid adventurers soldiered onwards and upwards, eventually finding ourselves outside Grace Episcopal Cathedral, where we paused to read some of the signs. The one that caught our eye advertised an upcoming event, which was, to say the least, a bit different from anything we'd heard of before. Now listen, 
I've been to a few different masses in my time. Sung mass, high mass, tridentine mass, folk mass, midnight mass, even house mass in my bedroom at uni, where I was caught with two nuns sitting on my bed. But the sandwich board in front of us was inviting us to come back at seven in the evening to attend, wait for it, a Beyonce mass. Yes, we had the chance to be at a mass where, instead of your run-of-the-mill hymns, the choir were going to belt out some of Beyonce's greatest hits. How crazy is that? Unsurprisingly, we politely declined the invitation, being neither in the mood to attend a church service, nor all that familiar with the songs of the said pop star. A quick tour of this lovely cathedral in the cloistered area outside set us up for a swift descent down through Chinatown. But we didn't retrace our steps to the hotel, instead continuing down to sea level before turning north and making for the harbour area. Twice on the way there, we encountered screeching fire engines from the San Francisco Fire Department. You know, those 50-foot-long monsters we see on the TV. And then, out of the blue, we chanced upon an actual fire station, which allowed us to take a closer look at those bright red lifesavers. We were delighted to reach the water soon afterwards, although we had just passed by a pretty tower on a hill, which promised some splendid views of the city and beyond. That would be for later, we thought. Two or three more blocks. And there it was, right in front of us, Pier 39. We had to pinch ourselves again. Once we were in the thick of the shopping area at Pier 39, we took an executive decision to buy tickets for a bay tour. And I was delighted when I got $8 off for being so damn old. After a comfort stop for me in one of those fully automatic toilets you always suspect will suddenly open while you're in mid-flow, we joined the queue, or should I say the line, for the ferry tour, and we got chatting to a couple from Vancouver Island, a thousand miles up the Pacific coast from where we were. The husband, of course, had to tell us he had a grandfather from Oban, and we were to hear of such Scottish connections from just about every Canadian and American we talked to. As soon as we left the dock, we could see Alcatraz Island beckoning in the middle of the bay, and shortly afterwards the boat swung left to head straight for none other than the Golden Gate Bridge. It was windy and cold on the outside upper deck, but we weren't budging, as we were determined to make the most of something we had both dreamed of doing one day, but had never really suspected we would actually do. The boat took us under the Golden Gate, then headed back to Alcatraz Island, giving us a close-up view of the famous state penitentiary, which once held the most dangerous criminals in America, including, of course, Al Capone. Unfortunately, this particular tour didn't stop to let you onto the island, but we'd read of another one which did, and Lady Burton was totally determined to go there. Well, she already had the stripy pyjamas, thanks to a holiday gift from her mum. Jeez, talk about passion killers. 
Beyond the island, we had a great view of the other, even longer bridge spanning the bay, called surprisingly the Bay Bridge. Then the boat turned and made its way back to the pier, passing at the entrance a whole, well, mm. Now, what do you call a collection of sea lions? A pride? Okay, a lot of sea lions. Dozens of these beasts were basking on a series of floating platforms at the entrance to the harbour and appeared to be attracting a big crowd of visitors. Once disembarked, we walked back round to get a more detailed look at these amazing creatures and we had to laugh at their antics as they jostled for the best positions on the platforms. And boy, were they noisy. With, this, with the sea lion's box ticked, we went off to see what else was in the area and soon found a musée mécanique like the one we'd seen in La Rochelle many years ago. Actually, it was 1998 to be precise because Scotland had just played a World Cup finals fixture there. If you can picture hundreds of the old penny machines from days gone by in the, in the arcades, and imagine them all housed under one roof. Well, there you have it. We had a great time inside spending our handful of quarters on dancing barbers, a mechanical hanging, yes, a hanging, and of course the infamous what the butler saw. The engineering involved in these automatons was impressive and very, very clever. When we left the Musée Mécanique by a side door, we find ourselves on a dock harbouring the submarine SS Pampanito. On the information signs, we read the details of how submarines actually manage to sink and resurface, as well as getting a close look at a torpedo and the electric batteries the submarines used. We could have gone inside the submarine as well, but at $30 a head, and mine was sore, <laughs> we decided against that. Lady Burton wasn't too sure about her claustrophobia anyway. As we started to head back, we came upon that iconic signpost announcing to everyone that you are at Fisherman's Wharf. So we obviously had to stop there and take a couple of snaps. I still remember that sign appearing in flashes in the opening titles to the series The Streets of San Francisco, starring, I think, I think it was Carol Malden. I never really thought I'd be standing in front of it one day. So you think that would be that? Nope, not when Mary's around. She insisted we climb yet another steep hill, this time to visit that tower we'd spotted on the way in. Actually, I'm really glad she did because we were treated to some absolutely splendid views of the city from the top of this place, which was called Coit Tower. We were both relieved, however, to find that there was an elevator to take us the 13 floors up to the top. The 200-foot Coit Tower stands at the highest point of the Telegraph Hill neighbourhood and offers panoramic views over the city and the bay. Given its location, well, the views are ample reward waiting for anyone willing to make the effort to go up the hill. It's also known as the Coit Memorial Tower, and was dedicated to the volunteer firemen who had died in San Francisco's five major fires. 
Although an apocryphal story claims that the tower was designed to resemble a fire hose nozzle due to Coit's affinity with the San Francisco firefighters of the day, the resemblance is disappointingly just coincidental and not deliberate. But wait till you hear this. As we explored the gardens which decorate the bottom of the tower, we stumbled on another of San Francisco's million sandwich boards which provide information for tourists. But this one really did get our attention, as it was a coyote alert, warning us to be careful in the evening around dusk, as coyotes had recently been spotted wandering around the hill looking for a free meal. But I bet they're not as frightening as Dundee's seagulls. By now it was time to head back and get some dinner but we still had that long trek back to the hotel, which tested our weary legs to the full. On the way, we stopped at the store to buy something for Mary to eat, and I checked out a Thai restaurant not far from the hotel, where I could buy a curry to go. Needless to say, scarcely was the food in our stomachs, then everything caught up with us, and we collapsed into bed, with the clock showing just after half past nine. Well, that has to be a record of some sort. We were awake again, however, about four in the morning, which we put down to a touch of jet lag, but thankfully got back to sleep until 8.30, when I went out and round the corner into zombie land to buy milk for my cereal. When I got back to the hotel, there was our big suitcase sitting staring at me, happy to be reunited with its owner. Now that did make Lady Burton smile. Well, listeners, I really hope you enjoyed days one and two of our amazing trip to the west coast of America. I'll be back soon with days three, four and five. But until then, stay safe and keep smiling. Bye.